Hey there, everyone. So do you ever get tired of the same old ways of seeing things? Do you ever get the urge to cut through the world of everyday surface appearances and look for the light that's rare in the depths? Well, then maybe, just maybe, the wisdom of podcast is for you. Because in this podcast, we explore great works of philosophy and literature and art and try to pull out of them what's most invigorating and interesting and inspiring. Whether they come from the works of Plato, or Dostoevsky, or Picasso, here we explore ideas that move mountains and rock the soul. So come join us, won't you? Come worship at the altar of ideas and come celebrate the dancing of thought. And don't be afraid of the leaping sparks as you can be certain of one thing, they will kindle the light inside of you. Welcome to the wisdom of, coming up today, Camus' The Fall. our brilliant, if I do say so myself, our, our brilliant John Locke blank slate uh, pitch for that action thriller movie series that we wanted to create ever since it, ever since it got scuttled, you know, we've been kind of nervous to get back on that horse, but I, I think we're ready as a team to try it again. And of course, you know, what better way to try and get something made these days is to dip back into that uh, that proverbial superhero well. But we're back at it again, going back to the superheroes, and I think I think we have the best the best antihero for for this modern age. We're kind of still debating the name back and forth. You're pushing for the equivocator, and I want uh, I want middling man. So. Picture this. It's a time, if you can imagine a time like this, it's a time when polarization has gone more and more extreme. We have right versus left, uh, MAGA Trumpist Republicans versus the Antifa wing of the Democratic Party. We have anti-vaxxers versus anti-anti-vaxxers versus anti-anti-anti-vaxxers. This group positively, they dizzy themselves with their triple negative stance. But they would all agree on one thing. They would all hate middling man, or fine, the equivocator. Because he, he's going to work towards enlarging America's middle. And we're not talking about the alarming U.S. obesity rates. Middling man, he will try to see the many sides of an argument in an intellectually open and honest way which gets him vilified at times as both a simultaneous neo-fascist and a cuckolded commie. But that doesn't phase middling man, because he is eschewing humanity's favorite pastime, judgment of others. In fact, middling man, a confirmed atheist, but one who still respects aspects of theological life, he pulls his catchphrase right from the Bible, judge not lest ye be judged. And get this, middling man's secret identity, none other than Alphonse Gaston Camus. 
the great-grandson of some writer who wrote some book that you want to talk about today. Wow, uh, that was weird. I think we need to work on that pitch a bit. This uh, middling man just doesn't have the kind of simplicity that our John Locke in Blank Slate did. But life is short and this is stupid, so let's move on. Okay, so first, and as usual, a brief summary. So The Fall was Camus' last complete work, and it was published in 1956. The story consists of a series of dramatic monologues by the the self-proclaimed judge-penitent Jean-Baptiste Clements, as he reflects upon his life to a stranger and eventually confesses his crisis and his ultimate fall from grace. The Fall explores themes of innocence and freedom and honest living. Jean-Paul Sartre called The Fall Camus' most beautiful work. I always, I always harbor the hope that, that my little intros are always at least somewhat true. But make no mistake about them, at risk of stating the painfully, like that scene in Martin Scorsese's Casino with the vice. If you know, you know. If you don't, you're probably better off not knowing really sorry, but if I'm at risk of stating the painfully obvious, my meanderings, well, they hope to be true, but they might not include a whole lot of facts. But this next one, well, it has its fair share of those pesky little facts. I was at a liquor store, as is my way, in line getting ready to pay for some industrial-sized box of Chablis, and I see a guy trying to pay. Now, I'm not going to judge, as per my intro. It might not be great to judge, but let's just say I discerned a few likely realities without ascribing any kind of morality to said situation. From here on in, I'm going to abbreviate that thought as daffrilwackomsts. Through my daffrilwackomsts, I think I saw... And I think I smelled a homeless fellow, or, sorry, a disenhoused human, or whatever the current label is. And again, with absolutely no moral judgment, there is often a substance abuse problem within that community. So as I'm watching and I'm waiting, he's a few bucks short of what he wants to buy. So I had this moral dilemma. Should I just tap my credit card and just pay for his his extra bottle? Or is that wrong, possibly encouraging harmful behavior? I truly didn't know what the right thing to do was. But since I'd already had a mimosa and a Moscow mule at that point, you know, I was feeling myself a little. So I said, fudge it. And I bought his extra mini bottle of vodka for him. After that, in the midst of still mulling over whether or not I'd done the right thing, like, you know, I'm thinking, did I buy this poor guy the drink that, that pushes him over the edge? Or did I just offer up a rare ray of sunshine and lollipops in his life? But then I came to a totally different realization. It wasn't really about that, at least for me. It wasn't really a moral question. It was really about me gaining the ability to tell the story. That's what I really cared about. I wanted to be able to tell my friends what I did, tell my mom, tell you fine folks on digital tape. Really, 
I'm just virtue, or if you disagree with that, I did vice signaling. Had I had no one to tell, I wouldn't even have contemplated doing anything. So am I just the uh, poor man's Jean-Baptiste Clements? Wow, that one actually made some sense. You actually took some time to craft a nice little relevant segue. And I stress relevant because uh, that doesn't happen much. Yeah, so maybe you just bought him the drink for your own self-interested reasons. So maybe you're not the, uh, the moral saint that you think you are. Okay, well, with that in mind, let's turn to the story. So Jean-Baptiste Clements had at one time been a, a really successful lawyer in Paris, where he had uh, defended, among others, the poor and the victimized. And because of this, he had gained a, a sterling reputation. He was admired and respected by the public for his empathy, for his devotion to good deeds, and for his acts of charity. And, uh, of course, he too believed in his own goodness. But then something happened. One dark night, as he was crossing the Seine River, he heard a, a young woman jump from the bridge into the water. Now, here's the thing. Although Clements heard her body hit the water and then heard her crying in despair, he failed to turn back and try to help. He just paused for a moment and then simply passed by onto the other side of the river. Well, after this incident, he was never the same again. That's to say, this experience was a sort of revelation, and it went on to haunt him. But in what way exactly? Well, what this incident did is it stripped him of his previous moral comfort and his sense of self-worth. In other words, what he came to see about himself is that all of his previous good deeds were, well, they were a sham. They were based on the acknowledgement and the applause of others. His supposed kindness and his empathy hadn't been genuine. And uh, Clements knew this because at a moment when he was sure nobody was watching him, he failed to do the right thing and save the woman in the river. From that point on, his moral bankruptcy and his cowardice became clear to him. Now, having his noble image shattered like this, having seen himself for what he really is, what Clements does after this is he sort of, he sort of lapses into a life of debauchery. And uh, what he eventually does is he, is he eventually quits his job as a lawyer, leaves Paris, and ends up as a barstool in a pub in Amsterdam, a seedy underground pub called Mexico City Bar. And actually, it's at this point that we're first introduced to Clements in the novel. His new way of life now is to approach strangers in the bar and confess to them his moral failures in part so as to indirectly get them to see their own hypocrisy and cowardice. Clements is, in effect, acting as a, as a mirror held up to their own lives, forcing them to confront their own lack of innocence. Okay, so this is not a light and optimistic novel. 
It has very little to do with human innocence, which actually Camus explored in one of his earliest works called The Stranger. I mean, in that novel, you could argue that it's actually innocence that's the source of the main character's alienation from society and from others. What's more, this novel, The Fall, also has little to do with the capacity for, for human goodness either. And actually, that's something that Camus had pushed in his previous novel, The Plague. There you get characters like Dr. Ryu, who, who does anything he can to help others from dying, even though, of course, it's futile. And um, don't forget about Taru, whose goal is to become, as he says, a saint without God. Basically, what I'm trying to say is that in the fall, unequivocal human innocence and goodness go out the door. Nope, this is a dark and pessimistic book. Its major theme is one of guilt and moral ambiguity and just, well, just the, the duplicity of human nature. And uh, by the way, one way in which Camus helps to get these darker themes across is through setting and atmosphere. I mean, again, think about The Stranger and The Plague, and actually most of his writings. Part of what's so striking about them is the fact that they're, they're pretty much all set in the transparent and crystalline light of North Africa. Well, not so in the fall. Notice how Clements leaves Paris, the city of lights, to go to cloudy, foggy Amsterdam, and to its seedy underground district. You see, what Camus often does is he connects or associates the Mediterranean and its uh, clear blue skies with unhypocritical people. The sun and the light represent simplicity and lucidity and directness, and such is the mind and the life of those living under it. And if you want a great example of this, Read Camus' early little essay, Summer in Algiers. There he argues that there's a transparency to Algerians that's mirrored in their natural sunlit setting. They're in tune with the, the basic elements of nature. They know who they are and what they want, so there's nothing opaque. There's nothing complicated. Well, not so in Northern Europe and Amsterdam. The grey skies of Amsterdam reflects a change in human psychology. Now we're in the realm of ambiguity and complexity and the never completely pure nature of humanity. Okay, well, so let's leave the more formal and symbolic aspects of the book. And now let's take a look at what it is Camus is partly trying to say in the fall. So let's go back to Clements by the river again. Remember, with nobody around, when no one is watching him, he chose not to come to the rescue of that young woman drowning. Actually, you know what? I'm reminded here a bit of what uh, Jesus said on the Sermon of the Mount in uh, Matthew 6.3. What he said was this. He said, When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. I take it that here Jesus is referring to our intentions or the condition of our hearts when we act charitably. That's to say, 
There's something suspect and hypocritical about giving to somebody and also at the same time being very public about it or wanting others to notice our generosity. If our intention in giving is to make ourselves feel righteous or to trumpet that righteousness for others to applaud, then our moral acts are not genuine ones. This is why Jesus counsels us to to give in secret when nobody is watching. That's the true test, when nothing's in it for us. At least not in this life, according to Jesus. Anyway, there is some of this hypocrisy or two-facedness at work in Clements. When he was a lawyer, he used morality to to get ahead or to to shine. His morality was ultimately a kind of dressed-up self-interest, or better yet, a self-love, which gets exposed, of course, when he fails to help the drowning woman. Now, more generally, I think that what Clements is telling us is that we're all like this to some extent. We all, to some degree, cloak our motives with good intentions. We self-mask. There is an underside to our shiny virtues. At the root of our virtues is what Iris Murdoch called our fat, relentless ego. Maybe another way of putting all this is that we're all guilty, whether we want to face up to it or not. Like Clements, we've all fallen. We're all guilty and compromised and duplicitous in some measure. And so our pretensions to selflessness are often just hypocrisy. Beneath our selflessness is selfishness. And, um, by the way, we don't have to go very far to see this, especially if you think about our contemporary world of social media. I mean, I think you could argue that if our society has a commitment to justice, then it's often a pretty superficial one. The genuine article seems to have been lost. What I mean is that there is a lot of shallow, disingenuous virtue signaling today. I mean, think about the whole notion of activism. What was, at one time, real, hard-working, costly activism has now pretty much been replaced by insta-morality, by quick, performative gestures, by token public support or bandwagoning and by facile social media posts. All of which, of course, demands little sacrifice. Hey, apparently you don't even need to get out of bed to do the right thing, and to also get hundreds of like clicks for it. All this raises the question Clements is asking. What are our real motivations? Are we really as morally excellent as we think we are? And How do we feel when we take the time to think about genuine activists and real heroes like uh, Alexei Navalny rotting in a prison cell, or all the Iranian women standing up for their rights in the face of oppression? Okay, well, all this said, I do want to try to offer up one more quick interpretation here. And it's a little different from the one I just gave. So maybe what Camus is also getting us to see 
aside from questioning the sincerity of our ethical intentions and behaviors, is this. Maybe what stops Clements from saving the woman isn't selfishness or self-love, but outright apathy or lethargy or a lack of strong instinct and passion for life. After all, he is described as weak and immobile when he hears the woman drowning. I mean, this apathy and immobility, this too is a crisis of our time. It's called nihilism. It's when we let things pass, not because we're selfish, but because we're indifferent. It's when we can't muster up the feeling to care enough to take action to help because all is meaningless. As Nietzsche said, it's when nothing is worth the trouble. But for Camus, things are always worth the trouble if we open up our hearts and love and let our passions rule. As he says elsewhere, things may be ultimately meaningless, absurdity may be king, but love saves us from it. to the wisdom of podcast if you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general visit wisdomofpod.com and as usual we love to read your questions and comments reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on twitter at wisdom underscore pod 